Well, here we all are, exploring together, still trying to figure out the human predicament. This human predicament of living in this world of change. So as promised tonight, more dukkha. The famous American author James Baldwin said, and I'm paraphrasing just slightly, people who do not suffer can never mature. They don't know who they are. And partly that's what we're doing on retreat. We're we're, um, discovering who we are. Sometimes it's uh, surprising. Doesn't always look like good news. (laughs) (laughs) And you could also say we're discovering what we are, who we are, what we are, what life is, how it comes together. But part of that exploration is is, um, personal dukkha, existential dukkha. And tonight we're going to go into the third kind of dukkha, more existential dukkha, called Sankara dukkha, or the dukkha of um, conditioned formations. So we started out our journey with dukkha dukkha, which is the suffering um, that we conventionally think of as unpleasant mind states, unpleasant uh, body sensations, the kind of Dukkha that just about everybody would agree is is suffering. Um, And then we went on to explore a kind of more subtle level of dukkha, which is the potential for dukkha in uh, pleasant experiences because they change. They end. We parinama dukkha. And that because we have such heavy conditioning to hold on when something's pleasant, um, we get, you could say, rope burn (laughs) When, uh, when it ends and changes, we suffer. And this third kind, um, Sankara Dukkha, is a Dukkha that uh, you could say is the most pervasive and the most subtle Dukkha. And it's a Dukkha that comes from having taken birth as a human with this human heart, body, and mind. And it's called, as I said, suffering due to condition formations. So what this means is that um, all formations of existence are all conditioned phenomena. So that's basically everything that we know that includes us, this body, mind, heart, uh, because of the continual arising and passing away of the phenomena. So what we are is a, a continual process of arising and passing away. And because um, in this world, uh, all things are contingent. So contingent means they're dependent upon, they change. So we as human beings are contingent, which means that um, what we call myself is uh, completely interconnected with many, many causes and conditions and doesn't arise independently on its own. It arises with, you could say, in a web of causes and conditions that continually change. And that's stressful. 
That's why it's called dukkha, the sankara dukkha, the dukkha of conditioned formations. So every um, physical and mental event only arises, or arises only when certain conditions come together, and these conditions are always changing. So nothing exists independently. This body, this heart, this mind don't exist independently in this world. It's only this momentary uh, set of conditions coming into being, connected to many other sets of conditions, all of which are constantly changing. So do you get a sense of kind of the pervasiveness of the, of the sense of change and the um, contingent nature of all things and, and the stress of that? It's, it's unstable, right? It's unstable. This constant uh, forming and ending and reforming. And so we might experience this as a kind of, um, or experience this kind of dukkha as kind of a pervasive, low-grade anxiety. It's like, <laughs> how, can I, how can I get it to rest a little bit? How can I um, get things kind of more right? And that sense that, that, that there's just this underlying insecurity because of this contingent nature of being. A Zen teacher named Ed Brown says, funny thing, you start sitting and your life unfolds. Sitting meditation is beyond your conception, beyond your agency. It's beyond your doing or structuring. You sit down here and your life unfolds without you directing it. That's the good news and the bad news. It's out of your control. And isn't that great? If it were up to you to control things, how utterly challenging that would be with so many things misbehaving. You might not appreciate their liveliness while you are busy wanting them to be peaceful, calm, or serene. Your life opens up and you become more interested in how things are manifesting as you stop telling them to be different than they are. So the key words there, I suppose, are it's out of our control. That's a key part of um, Sankara Dukkha. And a key part why we, we find it to be suffering is that we see that all of this is happening outside of our control. There's so many causes and conditions coming together, we can't control them all. We can't peg it down. It's a wild ride being human. It's a wild world. And as the noticing per minutes, that's what Joseph talks about sometimes, the noticings per minutes, the moments of awareness per minute, as they come closer together, using Greg's finger analogy, as they come closer together and we start to see life more, um, the mindfulness is more continual, we actually start to see this uh, more and more deeply, that it's a wild ride. So we have this sense that um, there's got to be some way to make it come together and be perfect, kind of like my search, that first three-month retreat of what was going to make me happy. So we keep uh, looking for perfection. 
And then we think it's our fault that we can't get it to come together the way we want it to get to come together. And then we're not so pleased about this. Gloria Steinem says, the truth will set you free, but first it will piss you off. (laughs) (laughs) And I think probably all of you have experienced that when you're frustrated with your meditation, right? And like how it's going. It's actually that very frustration that is our teacher because it teaches us how we are um, trying to get something that's impossible to get. That's why we keep getting frustrated. So this Sankara Dukkha goes to the heart of the question of control, which also came up this morning. So because of this contingent nature of things that it's always... um, that the causes and conditions are always changing and that we're, you could say, embedded in that. Um, there's also this kind of corollary that things go towards disorder, they go towards em- entropy, they go towards chaos. Joseph Goldstein puts it, without doing anything, your house or apartment gets dirty. That's how he describes Sankara Dukkha. <laughs> This is really true. I came back on, a, I went home for a day, and um, I came back a Wednesday night, and they had cleaned my apartment, like a mid-retreat cleaning. And I walked in, and it looked so nice. It was, you know, everything put away and all cleaned. And, and um, so I got home, you know, I got back here like, hmm, this is home, I guess. I got home about uh, 9, and uh, the next morning I was, you know, halfway through making breakfast. It was, you know, what? 7.30, and I noticed it wasn't clean anymore. <laughs> it didn't have that kind of pristine, clean quality, and I was like, oh, Sankara Dukkha. <laughs> Another way that we can sometimes relate to this is um, on retreat, sometimes we get the sense of like how much maintenance it takes to keep your body Running. I mean, we might see this in daily life too, but on retreat, I remember especially noticing this when I was doing the Mahasi style of practice where you note every few seconds. So you're noting everything you're doing. And I would remember like, oh, do I have to brush my teeth and note all the way through? (laughs) It's like, oh, you have to wash the body and feed it and and groom it and exercise it and rest it. and, And it's so much work. It's more work than having a pet dog. (laughs) That's Sankara Dukkha. The energy that it takes to maintain this um, body functioning and this mind and heart in decent shape because things are always changing and going towards entropy. So another kind of um, way of talking about Sankara Dukkha is uh, about this, um, what's called um, sense impingement or continual sense impingement. So what does impingement mean? (laughs) It's not a word we use a lot in English and for you second language uh, 
people English is your second language, you might wonder also. So sense impingement. I looked up impingement, and impingement means to have an impact, especially a negative one. So sense impact. Or sense or to, to impinge is to strike upon. So sense our sense is being struck upon, our sense bases. Or the last one's really interesting is to encroach. So to encroach is to go into territory where you're not invited or wanted. And so one way that this um, Sankara Dukkha is understood is this like continual sense impact or sense impingement that happens ceasingly throughout our life and that that itself is wearying. So I'll give you a few just really I mean, easy little examples. So yesterday... I was walking up here, and um, they were cleaning the septic system. And so I walked up the driveway, and at one point I smelled the sewage, right? And I was like, oh, Sankara Dukkha. It's like I didn't ask for that smell. I didn't particularly want it. (laughs) But because I'm a human being, and there's this contingent nature of me being, um, you could say, embedded in in reality, (laughs) it, it happened, And then later, I don't know if you guys heard it during the morning, but I was doing my interviews upstairs, and all morning they're doing this drilling and all that. And um, again, it was like, I didn't ask for hearing that sound. I didn't ask for that to be going all morning long till 11.40. Sankar <laughs> Dukkha. Or you're on retreat, you go to your walking space, you're minding your own business, and then you get this glimpse of your um, VR, your, the love of your life. And, um, and then all of a sudden, right, you're like distracted from walking meditation, you're having feelings of lusts or fantasies or however you experience VRs. <laughs> and, um, and yeah, it, that, the sense impingement. So you can understand why there's a sense of the word impingements used, that kind of impact or encroachment. It's like you don't ask for it, it happens. Last summer, I, I love to go um, wilderness camping. I go most summers with my partner. And um, we have a lake that we like to go to in the Adirondacks. We, we go canoe camping and and I try to um, get a ways out where there aren't too many people um, where I can control the environment. <laughs> or such is the wish. <laughs> and um, you don't always know what you're going to get or who else is going to be camping on the lake. Um, but I wrote a, a poem, a little haiku, that I think is a Sankara Dukkha haiku. So um, I swam to a rock out little island. It says, swimming to island, oh, the wonderful warm rock, sandflies biting hard. <laughs> you know, here I am trying to set it up to be the way I want, and sandflies bite me. It's Sankarduka. I can't control that. Here's another one about the quiet lake. Magenta sunset, spruce logs crackling on the fire, young men shouting late. <laughs> Sankara Dukkha. <laughs> so we might notice it when it's like especially strong, but it, 
but this sense impingement is happening all the time. And, and you're seeing and experiencing this, even if you don't have the name for it. And as I said, we tend to think that something's wrong and like we should be able to control things a little bit more. But we can't because we're contingent beings. We're beings that are deeply embedded in, um, in everything <laughs> and we're deeply connected. Another way you can kind of describe this is so what we call a life, what we call our life, what we call ourself, is this, um, are these six sense experiences, six sense doors, the, the usual five senses we think of, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting the body, and the mind. And... Um, or the five aggregates is another way that it sometimes is, uh, the self is described, but I'm going to use the six senses for this talk because of the sense impingement um, part of Sankara Dukkha. So a sense experience is, I think somebody's t- Greg talked about this a little bit, but I'll repeat it. So a sense experience is the coming together of the sense door, the sense object, and the sense consciousness. So we have the ear door, we have sound waves, (laughs) sense object, sound waves, and then we have hearing consciousness. And it said that those three come together, ignite, (laughs) and that's a moment of experience. And what our life is, is continual these moments, one after another. And so you can see right there that we can't separate ourselves out. We can't say that I'm the ear or something like that, or I'm separate. I'm, I'm, what I call me is already deeply embedded because the sense experience depends on the sense object and the sense door and the consciousness. So what happens when we have the, when these sense experiences arise, ignite moment by moment, we tend to I- identify with them. That's what we call it, right? We tend to kind of glom onto them. We feel that they're about me, or who I am, or they are who I am. We get involved. We get very involved, and then we feel tossed around. And we want to manage and control and secure these experiences, these sense, arising sense experiences. I mean, we've all experienced that too here. So it would give thinking for an example. Thought arises, that's the sense object is the thought. The mind is the sense door. And the thought arises and you're like, no, I don't want to be thinking that. <laughs> This says something about who I am, or it's not in my project, or whatever. And, and, and so you've identified with the thought then. You've made it who you are, what you are. You've glommed onto it. You've clung to it, all the different kind of ways we talk about it. And then you want to manage it. Dukkha. <laughs> the Buddha said this specifically in his teachings on the first noble truth. He said, clinging to these uh, constituents of self as self is dukkha, 
clinging to, he, in this case, he used the five aggregates, but you could say the six sense bases. Clinging to them is dukkha. So when we own the territory, when we take this territory as um, me, you could say, and glom onto it, um, that's when we want to control and manage it. There's a rather funny story, I like to read it, about um, this in a, in a kind of larger sense, but you'll get the connection, I think. It's from um, a book by Lynn Jensen, uh, another Zen teacher. <laughs> so this is about the relationship, the adverse relationship between um, um, territory, owning territory, and freedom. And he's talking about his woods. This is not his. Somebody named Forster is talking about his woods. It makes me feel it ought to be larger. The other day I heard a twig snap in it. I was annoyed at first where I thought that someone was blackberrying and depreciating the value of the undergrowth. On coming nearer, I saw it was not a man who had trodden on the twig and snapped it, but a bird, and I felt pleased. My bird. The bird was not equally pleased. Ignoring the relationship between us, it took flight as soon as it saw the shape of my face and flew straight over the boundary hedge into a field, the property of Mrs. Hennessy, where it sat down with a loud squawk. It had become Mrs. Hennessy's bird. Something seemed grossly amiss here, something that would not have occurred had the wood been larger. I could not afford to buy Miss Hennessy out. I dared not murder her, and limitations of this sort beset me on all sides. Nor was I comforted when Mrs. Hennessy's bird took alarm for the second time and flew clean away from all of us under the belief that it belonged to itself. (laughs) Ah, how quickly we mark our territory (laughs) and then want to manage it. So we've talked a lot about rather um, maybe the obvious forms of clinging, of grasping and aversion, right? So the kind of clinging that we're talking here is, um, is um, subtler. It's, it's, it's this uh, glomming onto our owning changing experience as mine, as who I am, that clamping down on it. <laughs> So a sound comes through, and we don't like it. Maybe somebody coughs in the hall, and then we clamp down on that. It's like, we own that sound. It's our sound. We, we don't want it here. we got to manage it. That's the kind of um, clinging we're talking about. There's a great story from uh, Ajahn Chah, the famous Thai master. Ajahn Chah knew that cutting yourself off was not the place of true inner peace. This was because his own years of trying to make the world shut up and leave him alone. He failed miserably. So it's talking about one time that he was a wandering monk. It says he lived on his own on a mountainside above a village and kept a strict meditation schedule. In Thailand, they love outdoor night-long film shows because the nights are cool compared to the very hot days. Whenever there was a party, it tended to go on all night. 
About 50 years ago, this is when Ajahn Chah would have been practicing, or maybe even more. He's... About 50 years ago, public address systems were just starting to be used in Thailand, and every decent event had to have a PA going. It blasted as loud as it possibly could all through the night. One night, Ajahn Chand was quietly meditating up on the mountain while there was a festival going on down in the village. All the local folk songs and pop music were amplified throughout the area. Ajahn Chah was sitting there seething and thinking, don't they realize all the bad karma involved in disturbing my meditation? (laughs) They know I'm up here. After all, I'm their teacher. Haven't they learned anything? And what about the five precepts? I bet they're boozing and out of control, and so on and so forth. Have you ever had that experience? Like there's some sound. It has nothing to do with you, but you're like, sure. Like they're, they're, they're doing it to get you. <laughs> it can happen on retreat and in life, but... But Ajahn Chah was a pretty smart fellow. As he listened to himself complaining, he quickly realized, well, they're having a good time down there, and I'm making myself miserable up here. No matter how upset I get, my anger is just making more noise internally. And then he had this insight, oh, the sound is just the sound. It's me going out to annoy it. If I leave the sound alone, it won't annoy me. It's just doing what it does. That's what sound does. It makes sound. This is its job. So if I don't go out and bother the sound, it's not going to bother me. Aha. As it turned out, this insight had such a profound effect that it became a principle that he espoused from that time on. If any of the monks displayed an urge to try and get away from people, stimulation, the world of things and responsibilities, he would tend to shove them straight into it. He would put that monk in charge of the cement mixing crew. Or take him to do every house blessing that came up on the calendar. (laughs) He would make sure that monk had to get involved in things because he was trying to teach him to let go of seeing meditation as needing sterile conditions. To see, in fact, that most wisdom arises from the skillful handling of the world's abrasions. Ajahn Chah was passing along an important insight. It's pointless to try to find peace through nullifying or erasing the sense world. Peace only comes through not giving that world more substantiality or more reality than it actually possesses. Or basically by not clinging. Because it's the clinging that gives it more substantiality and more reality than it actually possesses. So this is from the book Small Boat, Great Mountain by Ajahn Amaro. So on the first two kinds of dukkha, we talked about unpleasant and then pleasant. And in this one, sometimes uh, people talk about neutral, also bring in neutral. And that all these... um, these feeling, experience, feeling tones of experiences, so the pleasant sense experience, unpleasant sense experience, neutral sense experience, that they all go on and on and on. And there's that relentless impingement. So there's a potential for dukkha. And as I said, what gets us is the uncontrollability. What was getting um, Ajahn uh, Cha was the fact that he couldn't control the sound 
that it was impinging or felt like it was impinging upon him. And so as we notice this about life, I think this question that sometimes comes up, I bet it's come up for some of you on retreat. It's a question that I remember a woman asking when one one year I taught the retreat in Burma because my teacher was sick. And um, a woman raises her hand. I remember sitting in the back of the hall, and she raises her hand. She says, where can we rest? And I think that's the question that we ask, like in this world of constant change, this um, ongoing uh, sense impingement, like where can we rest? So we're looking for rest and we're looking for refuge, but we're mostly trying to find it through clinging, controlling, trying to control in a world where that's impossible to do where everything is interdependent and changing. It's so frustrating to come here and to think that that you're supposed to be able to somehow control this heart, body, mind, at least a little bit. (laughs) And I'm not saying we don't have agency. We do. Obviously, you're here and you're doing something. But um, as you've noticed, you can't make a day of meditation go the way you want it to go. So we try over and over and over again, right, and see that it can't be done. From the book To Shine One Corner of the World by David Chadwick. A student of Suzuki Roshi saw his teacher of a year and a half in a private interview. He said that he couldn't continue, that every time he sat sazen or meditation, he started to cry. I can't take it, he said. I'm leaving. I can't be here anymore. Suzuki didn't tell him to stay. He merely said, you try and you try and you fail and then you go deeper. That's a meditation retreat. So sometimes when I have that feeling that I didn't ask for this, that, that, that there's some sense impingement that I, that I didn't ask for, um, sometimes I just name it Sankara Dukkha. I find that really helpful. Kind of takes the person, personal, personalness, that's not a word, the personal nature of it away. It's Sankara Dukkha. And it breaks the spell for me that that somehow I should be able to control it or there should be some kind of way I can get things to be just right. It's just part of the dukkha of being a human being. So let's look a little bit more at the conditioning. So as I was saying, when we identify with our glam onto sense experiences of mind and body, heart, then we think that we have to protect them and manage them and control them. 
And so how do we try to do that? How do we try to control sense experience? We have uh, three major strategies. Grasping, aversion, and delusion, or spacing out. We usually all have our preferred of those three, though we do all do all three. But uh, sometimes we have our, 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 major, our major one. So we try to control experience. We try to protect the self, actually, what we think of as ourself. We try to protect the self from this sense impingement, from Sankara Dukkha, you could say, through trying to grasp or push away or just, I'm out of here, space out. So grasping gives us this illusion that we can make the pleasant stay. That's the hope, the secret hope, and maybe it works sometimes. So we have this idea that it's a good strategy. (laughs) Aversion has this illusion that we can make the unpleasant go away. We can get rid of it. That's its secret wish. (laughs) And delusion uh, spaces us out, so we don't actually connect with this human reality, this human situation. Unfortunately, these three strategies, although they give us some illusion of control, they harden the heart. They harden the mind. They may protect some or give us illusion of protection, but they harden the heart and mind. And most of us at some point realize that that's a steep price to pay for the illusion of control. But this is our predicament. We want protection. We want protection. We want protection from our embeddedness, from the vulnerability of this sense impingement. And yet the ways that we protect ourselves or try to protect ourselves are suffering. So a whole other part of the Sankara Dukkha is that we, that we feel our vulnerability in the world. We feel um, how easily we are touched by life or how easily life touches us or how easily life touches life. I'm using conventional language of, of self. We're incredibly sensitive creatures mid-sized mammals, as uh, Greg calls us. <laughs> and sometimes what happens on retreat is we, is we really start to notice that more, like how incredibly, what incredible sensing, sensitive beings we are. We feel more acutely because some of these defenses and protections of the heart um, have softened some. There's something about the safety of this place that also softens them, the safety of not having to deal with all the turmoil of your lives. So there's that softening. And then because of that, there's this um, 
the protection between this being and 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 life, you could say, um, gets more transparent. So you might have noticed on retreat, one way we notice this is that things that... Um, Little things affect us so much more and can kind of become really quite huge. So you're sitting in your room, you're in blissful samadhi, and somebody down the hall closes the door loudly, and you're ready to strangle them. (laughs) Or what if somebody's walking in your walking space? Maybe I've heard stories of people who stand and glare. <laughs> you know, there's territory, right? Like, that's my walking place, or that's my place in the dining room. <laughs> Just little things, but we, we're, we're so sensitive. We feel impacted. I know one uh, meditation teacher who, in her early practice, she couldn't stand the sound of the heat over in what's now, I think, called Bodhi. And it was just driving her crazy, so she turned off the um, heating system. (laughs) This was in December. (laughs) She forgot to turn it back on, and the next morning everybody's walking around in their, you know, winter coats. (laughs) But that's how far it can go. (laughs) Don't do that. (laughs) Or you see a note on the board. My first, no, not my first. This was some years into my practice. I don't remember how many, but I was on retreat with a partner of mine, an ex-partner of mine. And we'd split up like eight months before, but it was still tender for me. And there was a note on the board in his handwriting to this woman that I suspected he was like getting involved with. Well, that was worth a week's worth of, um, <laughs> it really was. Like, I spent a week processing that. I mean, it was actually great practice. I learned so much about emotions. <laughs> I did. I, I, but it was, it was painful. And it was just that, that impact, right, that things just impact us. Remember, I went to the doctor on my first three-month retreat. I went to the doctor like two months in, and I can still tell you what songs were playing on the... I won't, but I could tell you <laughs> what songs were playing on the, on the radio in the waiting room. It's like, wow. So we find this, um, this sense, this vulnerability, and this sense of, of, of being such sensing, sensitive creatures... Um, in a world that's not so controllable, we find this very uncomfortable. So what we do is we try to control our environment so that it um, is pleasing to us, so that we don't feel so vulnerable. And when we teachers often get many helpful notes about what we can do to (laughs) improve the environment here. That's because we're feeling vulnerable. And when we're feeling really out of control, we might write notes to other yogis about how they can improve the environment here. <laughs> Don't do it. <laughs> like that first retreat I told you about, I, could, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't bear 
that I couldn't control the snoring (laughs) behind me. So when we freak out, when we have yogi mind, which happens to just about all of us at some point, so please don't take that personally. (laughs) What we're really kind of freaking out about is, is the vulnerability, the lack of control. It's not even so much what's happening. It's Sankara Dukkha, the sense impingement. There is, I think there's somewhat of a sense. I think this has something to do with the dominant culture, um, especially those who are accustomed to being in positions where they might have more power because of race or social and economic class or gender. Um, There is a sense that And I think it's strong in this country, stronger than other countries. There's a sense that we should, that we have a right to control things, (laughs) that we should be able to control things and that we have a right to do so. And, um, And I would say more of an insistence on doing so. So I think that's some, somewhat of the culture or the dominant culture. And, and it is true that on a retreat in this country, you can get a lot of things to be the way you want them to be. <laughs> and I know that at a certain point, I felt like, um, in some ways, I felt like practice got too easy for me here because um, I could get it to be pretty much easy. So I decided to practice um, in Asia where I knew that I would have much less control over how things, so I wanted to stretch, actually, that stretch by going somewhere where I would be challenged more. And um, so I did go to Burma, and um, my first day there, first of all, I had my little kuti, my little hut, and um, there was a big cabinet in it. It was filled with mothballs, and um, I'm, I'm kind of allergic to mothballs, so I was like, oh, boy. So then I decided to try to move the cabinet out onto the deck, and I, and I did that, but then I pulled out my back. <laughs> and then um, the town's right below, so, like, all the smoke comes up, and, and so um, I kind of had asthma, so that, that was hard. And then they were doing this... Um, program in this place, in this hall, that they just painted all the floors with oil-based cement paint, which I'm allergic to. And um, so it went kind of on like this, right? This was all the first day. And um, (laughs) then that night, they had um, one of these all-night parties that Ajahn Chah talked about. So apparently they were ordaining a bunch of um, young men. And so the party went on. It may have, you know, petered out between 2 and 4 a.m., but besides for that, it was loud, loudspeakers, really loud loudspeakers with music and people preaching. And um, I was like, oh, wow. <laughs> I wanted to see what it was like to not feel like I have so much control. <laughs> I panicked. I experienced quite a bit of panic. It was really quite challenging. 
And yet it was really great. It was such a, I learned so much. First of all, I learned that I, that I can work with panic, which was useful to know. Um, Oh, and then it was five airplane tickets, so I wasn't going to be able to just turn around and leave. And there was no internet or anything like to, you know, redo my tickets. It was, so so I was like, all right, well, if if it's three weeks weeks of panic, I'm signing up. That's what I'm going to do. Our happiness is not dependent on conditions being the way we want them to be. I'm not saying you all need to go to Burma to learn that. For many of you, there's plenty going on here um, for, for, for you to learn. <laughs> for most of you, right? There's plenty of challenges here, so please don't take that. But I think it's important to keep remembering that, that our freedom is not dependent on getting conditions to be the way we want them to be. Because due to the fact that we're contingent creatures, we're not going to be able to pull that off. Judy Leaf says, We have taken a tiny speck of the vastness of the universe and staked it out as our territory, and now we are stuck with protecting it from change. That's how we suffer with Sankara Dukkha. So we practice. We practice noticing how we Um, glom onto and identify with sense experience. And as Andrea said this morning, we start to learn that that's painful. And we start to consider the option of letting go of this. So we see that this is painful, and we start to consider maybe relaxing that, that fist, that fist of control. And we don't, we don't demand that that happens because we can't demand that. We try and we try and we fail, and then we go deeper. And so we start to see that our identification with, our glomming onto, our clinging to, whatever language works for you, with these changing processes of sense experience, that 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 that, that slowly lessens, and we become more comfortable with the groundlessness of life. And we see that the world doesn't fall apart if we don't keep it totally together. Larry Eisenberg said, um, if you don't, uh, oh, how was it? I can't, I don't have the exact quote here, but it's about resigning as general manager of the universe. (laughs) You know, we've set ourselves up as general managers of the universe, and we start to consider that maybe we'd like to resign from that job. (laughs) 
And we start to let go, let go, let go, let go, and enjoy, enjoy the ride. So we also explore this sense of vulnerability that I talked about. We explore this this, um, being affected by or being touched by life. And we start to kind of consider the possibility that it's okay that, that this exchange, you could say, or this flow um, be open and not be so protected. And we start to see that when we resist, when we resist our vulnerability, our, our, our embeddedness, our, our contingency, when we resist that, there's so much fear and so much um, suffering. But that when we don't resist it, when we open to it, um, there's this aliveness and connectedness and embeddedness in the world. There's an ease. We haven't made ourselves separate through clinging, through grasping aversion and delusion. We haven't pulled ourselves out but rather can rest within. Now, the maddening thing is we can't control which one happens, <laughs> whether it's a, it's a fear and resistance to this contingency or whether it's the openness, the non-clinging, the letting go, the letting be, the aliveness. There's that book I've mentioned before, After the Ecstasy, Then the Laundry, by uh, Jack Cornfield. One senior lama said, Perfection must be around here somewhere. Where is it? Is it the next experience or the one after that? My true practice is patience, not wanting anything special or unusual to happen. As soon as I see striving and expecting, I know I've lost the great perfection. The hardest thing I still have to pass through is a realization there is no perfect final condition to rely on. It is all fundamentally insecure and changing. You don't learn this quickly. You have to let go into this ordinary perfection again and again. So we start to take experience less personally. (laughs) There's less resistance, less holding on, kind of less protection from our basic vulnerability as humans. A beautiful, heartbreaking vulnerability, I might add. It's a kind of tender vulnerability. 
And it opens, when we experience that, um, it opens the heart of compassion because we understand that we're all in the same boat together, all beings, humans, animals, I'm going to include trees, flowers, plants. We're all contingent. We're all vulnerable. So there's this sense of um, just deep tenderness and deep respect for that truth. Here's a question some of you might have. John Engler, a a psychologist, I believe he's a psychologist from Boston, he said to Deepama, and I believe this comes from... um, um, Amita Schmidt's book on Deepama. I said to Deepama once, very early on, that the outcome of practice sounded pretty dull and blah to me. Once you got rid of desire and aversion, where was the chutzpah? Where was the pizzazz? Where was the juice? Life would be pretty tepid and uninteresting if you didn't enjoy anything at all. To my surprise, she broke out laughing. No, she said, you don't understand. Life is so much more full of zest now than it was before when I was carrying all that baggage around. Now each experience has its own taste, and then it passes and it's gone. And then the next experience has its own taste. The conviction was not in her words, but her spontaneous laughter at my question. That's letting go. And so part of practice is, to, is being here and uh, strengthening our hearts for this journey, this journey to become more and more connected with reality and the truth of reality and to allow our illusions to dissolve so that we can learn to let go and be at rest. So there's all these different, uh, Greg mentioned them the other night, the paramis. They're all so important because they strengthen the heart. When I went to my teacher and and told him about my suffering and how I didn't know what to do and he recommended a metta retreat, he he was recommending that I build paramis, that I strengthen my heart so that I could be with things as they are. So all the ways we strengthen patience and renunciation and energy and metta and truthfulness and generosity and ethics, all of that strengthens the heart. So that's also really important parts of practice. So that we can experience joy even in this world with so much dukkha. Voltaire, the French philosopher, said, 
Life is a shipwreck, but we must not forget to sing in the lifeboats. <laughs> Maybe it's the parmies that help us to be strong enough to sing in the lifeboats. So it always comes back to non-clinging or to to relaxing that fist of control, letting be. Seeing that what we are is this continual coming together and fading away of conditions. Holding on causes rope burn, letting go. We can rest. I think that's enough for tonight. Let's sit for a minute. I can, if there's anything of usefulness in the talk for you, you can take that. And otherwise, letting the words float away as we return this body, this heart, this mind sitting here working out our freedom Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.